Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Wolf Ocrates, your followers have a question. What is it? What is cottage cheese, oh great teacher of men? First, we must discuss the fact that all cheese, all kinds of cheese, exists in its perfection and eternity, and that the bits of cheese we put in our mouths derive from this whole, but are not it. Hey, is somebody playing a liar? Yes, Wolfocrates, that is Santanicus. Well, stop it. I can't concentrate with that cockamamie sound. Now, cottage cheese differs from other cheeses in its quality of not tasting good. The problem with other cheeses is that they taste very good. So you eat a lot of them and you wind up looking like the guy they bring in for short yardage situations. So should we eat the cottage cheese, teacher? No. Why would you eat something that doesn't taste good? You know what cottage cheese really is? It's attempted cheese, like attempted murder. It's like they took a shot at making cheese and then... Hey, what did I say about the liar? We're sorry, teacher. Now, such a headache I've got. Anyway, it's like those rice cakes. You know the things I mean? Crunchy, but they don't taste like anything. You should not eat them. You're just working your jaw muscles. Are you worried they'll atrophy? Man should only eat that which tastes good. Now, what I want you to do is, you know the little domade stand on the street of the tripods? The guy with the droopy eye and the really great stuffed grape leaves? Yes, teacher. Go get me a large order with an egg lemon sauce on the side. I don't want it poured over because it gets runny and gross. Yes, teacher. Do I look like I'm getting any younger sitting here? Get a move on and take Liar Boy with you. Of course, teacher. You want to get a little peace and quiet around here, you have to yell to your blue in the face. So here's a show about the philosophy of eating. Not cooking, eating. And now his prepackaged turkey s'mores were turned down on Shark Tank. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I thought they would love me on Shark Tank, uh, but they didn't like the prepackaged turkey s'mores. All right, so it's uh, to see this is a show about the philosophy of eating is to damn it with faint categorization. I'm not even quite sure how I would describe what we think the show is going to be like, uh, but it, it probably won't be that much like the Food Schmooze. Uh, I'm just guessing, although we do have one crossover guest from the <laughs> Food Schmooze with us. Linda Juca is in the studio with me. She's a freelance writer, editor, co-author of the New England, New, New Haven's Chef Table. I don't even know what restaurants, recipes, and local food connections. Uh, I've known her for, I, I shouldn't say how many years, right? No, don't how many, say, I won't please, say how many, how please. many years. Uh, <laughs> and we used to work together at the Hartford Current uh, many years ago. Uh, on the phone, we have L.V. Anderson, uh, Slate assistant editor. She edits Slate's food and drink sections and writes brow, the Browbeat recipe column, You're Doing It Wrong, which is a great name for anything about food, I think. And then speaking of uh, You're Doing It Wrong, <laughs> Dan Pashman, he's the creator and host of WNYC's food podcast. The Sporkful and the author of Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. 
You can find Dan at Sporkful.com. I have to say that I've been laughing. I'm a tough laugh, too. I mean, I write humor for a living a lot of the time. I feel like I'm a tough laugh. I've been laughing all day at this book. Anybody who's been sitting near me has been, you know, cranking their head around going, what are you, what are you looking at? What are you? People don't like it if you're laughing in their vicinity and they don't know why. But this is um, a funny and also extremely useful book about food. So all three of us are going to talk uh, about food and about eating, about what the unseen rules are. Uh, and whether or not you can break some of those unseen rules. And so um, since it's uh, Thanksgiving is only a couple of days away, I thought we would start there. And um, I'm going to ask, I guess, uh, I'm going to ask a real-life question just uh, to start. I mean, a real-life question in that this is really going on in my life. So I'm going to a big uh, – Dan, I'm going to have you lead off here. I'm going to a big Thanksgiving dinner, big, big Thanksgiving dinner. I, I made Thanksgiving dinners for 25 years. Nobody needs me to do that anymore. And so I said to the host uh, or hostess of this dinner, would you like me to bring something? And she said, no. no. I mean, unless there's something you just can't live without. No, you don't have to bring anything. So – so what's my next move? Should I just not bring anything? Or is there some <laughs> other unspoken thing going on here? I'm philosophically speaking, am I still basically obliged to make something? That's a, that's a tough question because I'm trying to look at it from the host perspective. Um, I think that presumably if, if a host tells you not to bring anything, there's one of two things happening. Either they're – in my book, I identify two types of hosts, missionaries and martyrs. <laughs> missionaries lead by example. Martyrs kind of fall on their sword and sacrifice their own happiness. But they, they take that happiness from knowing you're happy. And this is a martyr-type host. He or she is thinking, I don't want to ask Colin to bring anything because he's cooked for 25 years. He was cooking the dinner. He's done enough. Let's let him rest. It's my turn to, to do all the hard work. If this person is a missionary, he or she may be thinking, well, I have a vision for this party, and it's going to be so awesome, and I don't want anything to contradict or interfere with my grand vision of merriment. Um, so you know your friend better than I do, Colin. Which do you think it is? Well, I, you know, I'm going to turn to L.V. Anderson for a second and just say, first of all, should I call you L.V. or Laura? How, how do you, you call me either, but I usually go by Laura. Okay. So I'm going to turn to Laura Anderson for a second and say, well, I think there's another area here, um, and that is that um, what, maybe what the host is really saying is, this is my family Thanksgiving. We, ha we eat certain things, which, as you know, are kind of immutable. Even for you, as you've confessed uh, in print, uh, after you're done uh, printing all these snazzy, new, innovative uh, turkey recipes and things like that, you go back and cook the thing your family expects you to cook. So who needs you showing up with your, you know, kicky new bacon and rutabaga and Brussels sprouts <laughs> uh, side dish? I mean, the, the, another possibility is nobody really wants to see what I've got in my bag of tricks. <laughs> That might be going a little bit too far, but I do agree with most of what you just said, Colin. I think that if someone tells you not to bring anything, the appropriate thing to do is to take them at their words, not bring anything except for, of course, a bottle of wine. I think that maybe the furthest you could go is give, if they're a good friend, give them a call when you're leaving home. Ask if they need you to pick something up because sometimes even the best prepared host will, like, forget to bring, you know, forget to buy enough flour or something yeah. like that. A turkey, but in general, say. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, I think that you should just 
take the host at his or her word and uh, and show up with, with something nice to drink. Well, I don't even have to ask Dan about the bottle of wine because I read what he thinks about this, which is that too many people are likely to bring wine and not enough people will bring food. So let me go over to Linda Juca on this. How, how do you... I mean, I'm sure anybody inviting you to dinner is going to ask you to bring something because they know you're a really great cook. But, I mean, what do you think the real rules of this are? Well, I think your friend is probably – she's pretty firm. She's probably – she probably does have that vision. Mm. I'm the first one to say – somebody will say to me, can I bring something? I usually say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't bring it. But then by the end of the conversation, I have the bringing something, um, including uh, a woman uh, who's kind of part of our extended family now – uh, who comes to Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners, and she always brings something because I, what I've said to her is um, bring something that you used to have at your table. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for Thanksgiving, it happens to be turnips because mm-hmm. uh, she likes turnips. I like turnips. Uh, uh, Christmas, she brings pierogi. So it, it all, it all kind of works out. Um. The, what I'm going to do, actually, I think I've decided is uh, because I, I, I don't really have anything where I would really feel bad that if I didn't have it. But I do like Brussels sprouts, and I've just seen a good Laura Anderson soy Brussels sprout uh, side dish recipe. And, and I'm going to, one of the things I'm intimidated about is they have they, – I mean, I've gone to several Thanksgivings there, and they have this, they have this sort of device where you put, like, the mashed potatoes in, in – it's like this series of heating trays, but it's like a big long row of them. I don't really know how to describe it exactly, but and each, there's sort of a cavity, and you put – they put the mashed potatoes in there. They put the and there's only a certain number of cavities to put things in, and then people go and they take things out of these, these these sort of heated, keep it warm kind of cavities. And I I know my Brussels sprouts can't be there. You know I know that there that those spaces are already spoken for. So I have to sort of factor for that as well. So um you know yesterday we were doing a different kind of show. We we're doing a show with Henry Alford where we were talking about the things that people fight about. Uh, at uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and you know he had just gotten through talking to FBI hostage negotiators uh, about how to have a, an amicable uh, Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, but Dan Pashman, uh, I just started polling people on Facebook because I wanted to test Henry's skills about what people fight about. And the most frequent reply, I said, what do people, if there's going to be a fight at your Thanksgiving dinner table, what are you going to fight about? Politics, religion? You know, whether or not Interstellar is a good movie or not. Um, and it isn't. And, um, <laughs> and the, the most frequent answer was vegetarianism. Uh, and, ah. and uh, I mean, many people said this. And I guess there's sort of a thing where, and maybe uh, Laura can also speak to this too because I know she's a vegetarian, but like maybe the host says, well, yeah, that has chicken broth in it, but that doesn't count or something. And then the vegetarian has to sort of be a vegetarian or something. I mean, what's your advice on, on navigating these troubled waters? Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, no, sorry, Dan, go ahead. Let Dan go first. And then, Laura, I, I know you have some things to say about it, but I, I thought I would let Dan hang himself uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, a, on, a, on a turkey trussing string. Yeah. Uh, and then, then you can sort of beat him like a pinata. <laughs> well, I would say that... Um, you know, anytime you're dealing with people with any kind of food restrictions, look, I think I certainly would, would go the extra mile to try to make those people feel welcome. I, look, I think that you got to meet people halfway. I think as a host, if someone with dietary restrictions is coming to your house, you should do your best to make food for them. As a guest, if you have specific dietary restrictions, and especially, you know, there's a whole spectrum. The word vegetarian, you know, these food restrictions nowadays are not unlike religions, which is like we have these words to describe certain classifications, but really everybody is kind of making up their own rules as they go. And so what does vegetarian mean? Well, some vegetarians will eat stuffing with chicken stock in it and some won't. And so 
I think that if you are on the hardcore end of the spectrum as a guest, then you should say, hey, you know what? I'm vegetarian, but I am. Uh, I'm, don't worry. I'm more than happy to bring this vegetarian dish that I love to eat at Thanksgiving. You know, but I, uh, I don't think you need me. I'm not going to hang myself, Colin, and Laura's not going to beat me up <laughs> because I have put a lot of effort into finding common ground with vegetarians, and that's why I've invented a dish called the Veggie Duckin', which is um, a takeoff on the turducken, which you know is a chicken stuffed inside a duck stuffed mm. inside a turkey. I feel like vegetarians are missing out at Thanksgiving, but not because you have to eat meat to enjoy Thanksgiving. It's because the turkey is this big, time-consuming, involved event dish that becomes the centerpiece of the table and makes the day feel special. The veggie duckin' does that for vegetarians. But it's sweet potatoes stuffed inside leeks, stuffed inside a giant two-foot-long banana squash with stuffing between each layer. And there's a recipe and video about it at sporkful.com. And um, it's big, it's momentous, it's fun, and we can all agree on it. We actually have, a, we've, I believe, stolen that picture and put it on a WNPR.org webpage Great, as well. You can, away. you can see the veggie duckin'. <laughs> I think it is crucial. You are missing out on Thanksgiving if you don't eat something with the word duckin' in it somewhere anyway. And that, <laughs> that's the important thing. Actually, isn't your husband, uh, Linda, yes. your husband is making an actual turducken for the first time ever? Please. I'm not sure we'll, we'll even be eating tomorrow. Maybe Friday before it's done. Yeah. Uh, well, he, he's deboning both interior birds. Yes, actually, he did it. He did it before a few some years ago, but he's trying it again. You know, a, wow. tur- a turducken is what inside a what inside a what? It's a it's, it's a, a duck inside a chicken inside the turkey. Okay, the other way, a chicken inside a duck. Chicken inside chicken a inside duck. A du- uh, yeah. well, chickens are smaller makes, than ducks. This, this, like, yeah. really <laughs> like, this is definitely a Marx Brothers routine we're doing. I right have here. a question. Yeah. Are there really people out there who would say to a, a vegetarian, "Oh"? There's only chicken stock in this. Eat it. Laura, this is your cue. <laughs> I'm, I'm just uh, appalled. That has never happened to me personally, but I think that there are people who don't realize until it's too late that chicken stock is not a vegetarian ingredient because they just don't think about it on a daily basis. And I think that if you're a vegetarian facing that situation, there, I mean, there, you do obviously have the option of just saying no thank you and leaving it at that. Um, or you could say, you know what, it's Thanksgiving, it's one day a year, this is a day for coming together, and go ahead and eat it and not make a big deal out of it. I think that both of those options are totally acceptable and that really no one has the right to – I mean, no one should be picking fights with anyone on Thanksgiving. There is probably enough tension at the table already <laughs> for other reasons. And so, like, I don't think that vegetarians should be picking fights with non-vegetarians and vice versa. Um right. But I will say, as much as I admire Dan's creation of the veggie duckin, I feel as a vegetarian that simply having a plate full of different side dishes is wonderful. I have never felt that I've missed out by not having an amazing, beautiful centerpiece at the middle of the table. And while the veggie duckin is truly a sight to behold, and everyone should absolutely go (laughs) to your website, Colin, so that they can see pictures of it, um, you know, I think that I've, I've never felt that my Thanksgiving is anything less than because I did not have the centerpiece. Well, what, then is there some other centerpiece? I mean, obviously, it's, it's an array of side dishes, but is there, like, something in particular? Like, would you feel really bad if you didn't have Brussels sprouts or something like that? Mm, yes, but I, I mean, I, that's true generally all the time. I love Brussels sprouts. I think I would feel real like, Thanksgiving would not be Thanksgiving without stuffing. My mom makes cornbread dressing. It is the best, and it's really just like once a year that it that 
the occasion comes around that I get to eat it. And so I would feel very bad mm. if, if it were missing. All right. So we're mainly talking about eating here today. And, and really, you could go to Dan's website, and you know, his listeners do things like they actually – uh, compose a perfect bite of of Thanksgiving food, like the things that you have to have kind of in one mouthful altogether, and things like that. So, um, uh, but let's. Still, I wanted. To, I want to ask one cooking question because I think there's something, and I sort of got this from Dan, but I'm going to start with you, Linda, uh, for the question. I think there's something that people do that's complete BS, and here's <laughs> and here's what it is. I mean. I know that we have to have turkey basters because other, otherwise Melissa Etheridge could not have David Crosby's baby, but. Other than that, is there really, I mean... No, maybe that's the only reason why uh, we do have turkey basters. <laughs> I mean, there's no real point in doing this, is there? I don't know. We don't base the, we don't base the bird over and over and over again. We don't. I mean, if you put, if you put enough, granted, there's a lot of butter on it. There's oil on it. Uh, some people put bacon over the breast. You know, that's, that's going to be enough. Dan, I think your theory is people just have to have something to do, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the main reason is that, you know, you have this whole day devoted to cooking this giant hunk of meat. You got to you want to pretend like you want to make it an active participation event. I mean, the the truth, the fact of the matter is that basting does very little Um, pouring any kind of fat or liquid on top of over your turkey um, does very little to get juice into the interior of the turkey. The, The if if basting serves a purpose. Uh, in terms of making your turkey more juicy, it's that it cools the exterior surface temperature of the turkey ever so slightly for a few minutes each time you do it. And the exterior area is where you're most likely to get overcooking because that's the part closest to the heat. And so by cooling the outside, you allow the inside to cook through without the outside overcooking. Um, but, Actually, what, yeah, go ahead. What, excuse me. What's more important is letting that bird rest for a while. So that the juices stay in the bird. Mm -hmm. That's probably going to do a lot more to to go towards a juicy bird than than any kind of basting. All right. Now, uh, people out there have questions, but not really questions about how to cook a turkey. There are too many shows do that already. But questions about, like, things people fight about, real value-laden kinds of questions, um, situations in which uh, somebody's feelings can be hurt. That's the kind of thing we want to know about. 860-275-7266. And we're not going to dwell for the whole show on Thanksgiving. We have other things we're going to move on to. In the second segment, I am going to have Dan lead us through a conversation since another thing that will be happening in, say, three or four days is that you'll be trying to make a turkey sandwich out of leftovers. Dan is obsessively interested, I think it's fair to say, in the dynamics of sandwich construction. Uh, And so we're going to have a a little talk about that. We're going to see what Linda feels about Dan's belief that lasagna is not worth making. Uh, We have like a lot of (laughs) we have have a lot of philosophical things we're going to get into that don't have too much to do with Thanksgiving dinner. But if you want to call right now, 860-2 Seven five seven two six six. We're still talking about Thanksgiving right now. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. And actually, what we'll do? Actually, we'll, we'll take our break right now. That, that's good. We'll take our break. We'll come back. Uh, maybe we'll get started on the uh, sta- sandwich uh, conversation and, and any calls you might have for us. Gobble gobble boo and gobble gobble giggle. I wish turkey only cost a nickel. Oh. I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. 
We're back. This is our conversation about eating. Uh, and Dan Pashman is with us. His new book is Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. Uh, and also with us, L.V. Anderson uh, from Slate. Uh, her uh, food and recipe uh, section is called You're Doing It Wrong. Lots of videos there, too. On You will learn things. You will learn the, uh, whether you can freeze a raw egg in a muffin container, um, yeah, all kinds of things, things that you wouldn't have believed were possible. Uh, you check them out. Uh, Linda Duke is with us. She's my longtime friend. She's, uh, you just heard her the other day on the Food Schmooze, uh, and she's, she's been a food guide to everybody in Connecticut for a long time. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You know, I, I think I, before I, I got a call here I want to take, but before this, let me take, ask another sort of philosophical Maimonides kind of question. Um, so, because um, actually, <laughs> this is something that comes up in my life a little bit too. So, you go to somebody else's Thanksgiving, and Dan, I'll start you uh, start out with you because I actually, once again, know part of what your answer is to this. Um, you go to somebody else's Thanksgiving dinner, and there's quite a lot of food there. You, of course, have either made nothing or this one side dish that you brought. Uh, plus your lousy little bottle of wine. And then at the end, you're sort of looking and you're sort of thinking, I wonder if I get to take anything home, you know, because I, like, I really kind of like to have like turkey tomorrow and stuff like that. Of course, I didn't make a turkey. So philosophically speaking for a moment, what are the what are the ethics of this? I mean, is the host obliged to take this into consideration? Is anybody obliged to send anybody home with leftovers? I think it depends a bit on how many people you're having at your Thanksgiving dinner. If you're hosting 25 people, then to cook enough food not only to feed 25 people but also to give 25 portions of leftovers, now you're cooking for 50. Mm. Plus, if you want extra, extra leftovers for yourself, now you're cooking for 55 or 60. That's a lot to ask. I myself, though, like we're having a small Thanksgiving this year. It's going to be, let me see, five adults and two kids. I ordered a 14-pound turkey. There's going to be leftovers. So I think if you're having a smaller group, sure, you should definitely plan to cook extra for leftovers for yourself and others. And I and encourage people to bring their own plastic containers to take the leftovers home because it's always annoying when you take leftovers from someone else's house. Now you have their containers. Returning them is a pain. Adding them to your collection is a pain because you already have more than you need. And so I bring my own containers when I go to like a, a family family <laughs> ga- gathering like that. I'll do that next time I go He's to Lin- yeah go uh, go to Linda's house. I thought you were going to mention something else, and it's funny because I was reading today as part of my diligent preparation somebody else's list of annoying food trends, and one of them was things served in mason jars. Too many things. Even your check comes tucked into a mason jar now. But um, you did have this elegant thing on your site, Dan, where you. Uh, showed uh, how people could be sent home with leftovers in uh, right if you want to do something a little more a little more high end you get some mason jars you layer the different c- components into the jar from bottom to top so you get like a a white layer of mashed potatoes and a red layer of cranberry sauce and a green layer of beans and a nice layer of turkey you seal it in the jar you put a bow around it and you give everyone a nice little a nice little parting gift. And there's also, you know, when you're talking leftovers, like two days later, there's something you can do I call the leftovers exchange party, (laughs) which is like, you know, two days after Thanksgiving, what are you sick of, Colin? You're sick of your food and your family. Mm -hmm. So get out of the house and go meet up with friends, and everyone brings their leftovers. And you all just open up the plastic containers, just put everything out with a bunch of spoons and forks and paper plates, and you just dig into each other's leftovers, and that lets you see friends, catch up, Reminisce about the holiday, try new foods, and find some new recipes for next year. 
Um, so I'll meet uh, Linda Juca halfway up Route 9 for some turducken. I, I don't know what I'll... I don't, a good I, idea. I've never had turducken. Turducken has never passed my lips. I would love to at least sample it once before I leave this uh, mortal coil. So um, <laughs> L- LV Anderson, Laura Anderson, um, one thing I've always wondered is um, people who are vegetarians, uh, that means you can... You have nothing to make a sandwich out of after thanks, I mean, Thanksgiving. What Do you feel left out of the whole sort of turkey sandwich phenomenon? No, I actually feel that sandwiches after Thanksgiving are overrated because you are taking up crucial mouth space and stomach space with bread, which is generally pretty bland and and boring. And I prefer to just eat straight leftovers, you know, put some leftovers on a plate, maybe microwave it, maybe not, just eat it plain. Um, I don't know. I've never felt left out uh, because I've never had a sandwich after uh, Thanksgiving with leftovers. Um, if, well, if, if I can jump in here for a minute, Colin. <laughs> First of all, I have a professional bread maker sitting in the studio with me, so I'm, I'm going to go to her eventually, but go ahead, Dan. Well, well, I, I agree with Laura's premise, but I, I have a solution for her problem. Mm. Um, you know, Again, in my never-ending attempt to find common ground with Laura and her vegetarian ilk, um, I invented something called the stuffing sandwich. Because I agree that you don't like. Why do you want to add bread to to stuffing and mashed potatoes? It's not only is it more starch, but it gets in the way of the featured attractions. Even if it is good bread, and you know you can have good bread other days of the year. You t- what I do is I take stuffing, um, beat a couple of eggs, mix it with two baseball sized balls of stuffing, separate them back into two balls, and fry them. Press them flat and fry them so they turn golden brown and crispy. And you use those crispy stuffing patties in place of sandwich bread. It does sound pretty good, actually. Actually, it does. I mean, we make pretty b- good bread, but that sounds delicious. Yeah, I mean, and, I, and you, I'm, I'm uh, actually, I'm not a vegetarian, but I agree with Laura. I'm not that crazy about turkey sandwiches. I'd rather have the various components heated up and and just sort of like enjoy that dinner all over again. All right, let's. Um, we do have some phone calls coming in. Uh, who want to people who want to ask the wise people of this show, or maybe they just want to tell a story. I'm not sure. Here's Ginny in Glastonbury. Hi, Ginny. Hi. How you doing? Fine. I am a born-again vegetarian. At late in life... You, you let Brussels sprouts into your life? You, you do, no, no. You, <laughs> no, they're still not. But I just decided I didn't want to eat meat or poultry, so I don't. And I have a niece who in college became a very vigilant vegetarian. So we have found at Thanksgiving meals that she will bring um, a dish that includes a protein with her, and um, I just don't bother to eat the turkey, and everybody pitches in. There isn't just one cook. Maybe the person who bastes the turkey is is the senior member, but everybody pitches in with bringing food. So that works for us. All right, so, yeah, and so everybody winds up feeling affirmed and nobody's feelings are hurt? Best I can tell. Yeah, well, that's not that interesting. <laughs> uh, we're mainly interested in, in emotional crises here. Hold on. Here's uh, James from New London. Hi, James. Hi. Um, yeah, off the top, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned um, two things that would ruin my meal. Um, one is turnips, <laughs> and um, I've never liked them. But the other is Brussels sprouts. Mm-hmm. And the reason I was trained to hate Brussels sprouts, my mother used to boil them for like 45 minutes. No, well, that would be bad. 
the whole house would stink so bad you couldn't even get in the house. Well, but also at this point you're having basically a drink of warm water with a little bit of Brussels sprout kind of wrapped around it. Yeah, you're, but, you're mainly you know, hydrating when you eat right. it. We've, we've got friends up in Suffield who are, are little by little on Thanksgiving um, training me to actually eat a decent Brussels sprout, but... Honest to God, try broiling them for boiling them for forty five minutes. No, I prefer, I, I prefer not to. And, and the, well, you know, I mean, um, Laura Anderson, I, I can't think of a food that it's that this is truer. I mean, the Brussels sprout has 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 had a greater and more impressive upwards arc over I don't know maybe fifteen or twenty years from ignominy to to prizedness. Uh, I mean, it's sort of amazing because, I mean, I've always liked them, but, I mean, they really were a, a sort of despised and ignored vegetable. And somehow or other now, they really are regarded as you know, the staff of life. Absolutely. Um, I think that part of what has made Brussels sprouts so popular in the past 10, 15 years is that people have realized that they're really good if you roast them. I mean, yes, they are absolutely terrible, as James said, uh, when they're boiled. Um, no one should ever do that to Brussels sprouts. But if you roast them, they are delicious. And um uh, actually, Slate has a piece coming out either today or tomorrow about how roasted vegetables, uh, you know, became the ascendant way of of preparing vegetables, and mentions Momofuku's uh, roasted Brussels sprouts with fish sauce as being a very influential recipe. But uh, yeah, I think you know, there you go to a, a restaurant these days. Uh, if it's a even re- remotely sort of fancy or cool restaurant, it will definitely have Brussels sprouts on the menu, and they're probably going to be roasted. And the good thing about Brussels sprouts, too, it's sort of hard to wreck them except for boiling them for 45 minutes. I mean, yeah. if, if you roast them for a long—I did this last night. I put the, set the oven on 200, and I went to the gym. And so I was gone quite a while, and I came back, and they were sort of burned, but they were great. I mean, they get dried out, and that concentrates their flavor, and they're crunchy. And you're, Linda Juca's nodding, right? Yeah. Sounds, no, it's good. Yeah, and you, plus, you can do a lot with them raw, too, slaws. Yeah. You can't hurt them. Like they're, they're great. Hey, I want to shift away from Thanksgiving, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, some things that Dan uh, brings up in his book, Dan Pashman, author of Eat More Better. and Because a lot of them are these sort of interesting areas of life where um, our attitudes towards food and our attitudes about people kind of come together in interesting ways. And I thought one of the um, – uh, Dan, one of the really uh, interesting areas, one of the many interesting areas in your book was uh, this whole question of food sharing, particularly at the beginning of a relationship. Uh, and and you sort of um, take us through these kind of different stages. What happens if you're at a restaurant with somebody that, you know, you're on your first, your second date, and there's this whole question that comes up, you know, of are you going to taste each other's food? I'll, I'll sort of let you take over. Explain your whole theory of this. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to share food. Uh, and when you're on a first date, it's, I think it's kind of an interesting question, like how are people going to do it? Um, what technique will they actually use to do it? And so it's like there's there's a lot of different options. So for instance, and I think uh, it it says a lot about the person uh, how they choose to share the food with you. So so on one end of the spectrum, you have um, they cut off a piece of let, let's just say it's steak because that's a simple food to, to cut into a piece. They cut off a piece of their steak and they place it on your plate and they say, here you go, try a piece of my steak. 
You know, or actually, on the full out, far end of the spectrum is people who say, "Well, I don't share my food." Now, if mm. someone says that on a first date, you know, that's just like a deal breaker. This person is obviously not ready for a grown up relationship. You know, the sharing that's involved on all levels. Although, could I put grown up relationship? Could I put one asterisk there, or or at least raise a question about that? But don't lose yeah. don't lose the train of your thought. But and I'll throw it even out to everybody else. I, I think one area that might be a little bit different is dessert, because I do know I know uh, intimately one person. Uh, who sometimes takes the position, well, if you want a dessert, order a dessert. Don't say you order a dessert and two forks or spoons because then I won't get as much of my dessert as I want. Um, and that seems not entirely unreasonable to me. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm often in the position where I kind of just want a few bites of something sweet. And so if you want that, you know, yeah, then, then sharing is a good option for you. But but there's other times where I'm like, I'm still hungry mm. and I want to hold dessert for myself. And in that case, you just got to say mm. to everyone at the table, sorry, but this dessert I'm ordering is just for me. All right. Now, continue um, on with your thoughts about food sharing. And then well, I'm going to throw it out to the other, our, our other panelists, too, including so Linda, for, first, Linda, whose husband runs a restaurant. So he may be in a position to see a lot of this kind of behavior. Right. So you have uh, working our way across the spectrum. You have people who don't share food at all. You have people who cut off a bite and put it on your plate. Then you have, let's say, a person who they cut off the bite and put it on their fork and then they hand you their fork. Mm -hmm. So now there's, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, mixing of saliva here. It's a little more intimate to use someone else's fork. Um, So this person seems like they're a little bit more open to a real relationship. Then there's the kind of person who will just give you their whole plate. They'll trade plates and say, here you go. Take whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know, that I think is an interesting one because it could go either way in terms of what this says about the person's readiness for a relationship. It could mean that they're the kind of partner who says, hey, I, I want you to follow your own path. Take a bite of this food however you want it. I want you to be free. I'm not going to I'm not going to chain you. To, to me, you know, but on the other hand, it could be the kind of partner who just sort of isn't ready to put it forth the effort. Um, and so, you know, this is this has potential, but, you know, proceed with caution. And then you know, the best scenario on a date is someone who feeds you the bite from their fork. They mm-hmm. feed you. And that's what gets what's sexier than that. You know, so I, I feel like that's, you know, that person you're going to be seeing again. Although it's like it's less sexy if it's lobster and you're wearing a bib. Because then it becomes kind of a throwback. So, Linda, you you probably see this a, a little <laughs> bit uh, from the other side of the uh, of the the food bar, as it were. I mean, your husband does one, run a wonderful restaurant uh, in Old Saybrook. What, do you, you do you have a philosophy or an observation about food sharing? We see we see it a lot. Actually, I, I could see it from my many years as a food editor. Also, uh, going to conferences, we'd go. A group of us would go out. I remember having a group of ten people at City Restaurant in L.A. a number of years ago. And the actually, the wait staff thought we were nuts mm-hmm. because we ordered tons of food off the menu and just the, we were at a, a round table and the plates just kept moving around and around and around. And mm-hmm. some of these people, you know, some we knew, we knew each other, had known each other from other conferences. Others, we were brand new. So there was a lot of saliva swapping, <laughs> I guess. Nobody thought a thing of it. Well, you all have mad cow disease now, but other than that, uh, everything's fine. Um, and, and so, although, Laura, that's a little, I mean, that's sort of this interesting kind of food editor group behavior, and you're probably familiar with that, too. You've held a number of these kinds of positions. But there is something, the thing that Dan's discussing, and I've done it, where you just hand your plate to the other person and take their plate. There is some, it's interesting. It is, you're, it's like a trust exercise, right? You're almost falling backwards into each other's arms at the same time as if that were possible. 
Yeah, that's true. You're, you're saying, I trust you not to eat more of my food than I'm going to eat of your food. Um, I think that this is great if you have someone who you're eating with who you who you know very well and you can trust. This is one of my favorite things to do um, when you're going out for brunch and you can't decide whether you want something sweet or something savory. You make a deal with the person that you're eating with that you're going to get one of each and then share them. Um, but I don't know. I think that uh, going back to sort of Dan's different scenarios about sharing food at the table, this is what makes tapas places so nice is when you have small plates that are meant to be shared. Usually they're discrete bite-sized pieces of food. So you really don't have to deal with the the cutting up of the, you know, of the meat or whatever it is and like creating a bite and a bite and then feeding it to your partner. You can just sort of uh each take um, you know, appropriate amounts of of each plate. The other thing you do, of course, is order things you know the other person would never want in the first place. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, like that's, that's why when, whenever <laughs> whenever Laura and I go out to eat, I get nothing but meat, and then I'm home free. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it, it, it's like having a stick shift car. No one ever asks to borrow it. Right. There, uh, is, there is a special kind of anxiety, I think, when you're a vegetarian and you're going out with friends and you're all going to share stuff um, that, you know, well, are we going to get enough vegetarian food? Am I going to be, you know, am I, gonna, am I just going to be stuck with this one dish while everyone else gets five dishes to share? So that's always something that needs to be negotiated. All right. We're going to grab a break here. We're, we're going to come back. Uh, one of the things we will tackle is Dan's assertion that lasagna isn't worth it. And possibly our other two food experts have their own ideas about not just lasagna, but things that are just not worth the trouble it takes to make them. got a wheat check wedged into the roof of my mouth and it won't let go. Betsy, quick, hit me in the head with that big Mark Bittman cookbook. Ah, good, you dislodged it. Betsy, I didn't know your twin sister was visiting you today. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Nia Tyler. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Captain Crunch. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff peering over the fence watching us talk about food, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, how to be a person who survives a life-threatening disaster. And now, back to Colin. All right, we've got three wonderful writers about food uh, with us today. L.V. Anderson, who's Slate's assistant editor. you got to check out You're Doing It Wrong, uh, but which is both food writing and food videos. Uh, Linda Juca is with us. Uh, she's been writing about food for people in Connecticut for um, longer than she cares to share. Uh, still does a weekly column with Chris Prosperi for The Current. Uh, Dan Pashman is uh, the creator and host of WNYC's food po- podcast, The Sporkful, and currently the editor of Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. Uh, this book is really um, a very, very, I mean, it really works as a humor book and also works as a, a book about food uh, and and about eating. So um, since I've been teasing this a couple of times, we now have to do it. So I was just, uh, in the book, uh, Dan has a little segment called something like classic lasagna is not worth it or something like that. So um, and I'm sitting next to uh, a nice Italian girl. Uh, <laughs> so Dan, explain why you think lasagna is not worth it. Well, to be clear, I'm not saying that lasagna isn't delicious. I'm just saying it's not worth it to make it yourself. Really, it's you're talking about it's pasta, sauce, cheese, and meats and or vegetables, or not. Um, but you know, those are the basic components. You actually 
physically constructing lasagna is kind of painstaking and tedious, I find. I mean, separating those long, flat noodles and then layering the whole thing, it's time-consuming. Yeah, it looks nice, but you know what you can do that can bring all those foods that I listed together in essentially the exact same way without quite looking the same? Baked ziti. Baked ziti is the same food, just already all mixed together. And I don't think that the amount of time and effort the extra time and effort required to assemble a lasagna pays off in deliciousness. If someone else wants to make it for you, then, hey, Linda, you want to bring me some lasagna? I will be more than happy to eat your lasagna. <laughs> I will because I, I disagree with you. You never ate my grandmother's lasagna. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you, the when when she – and actually we, we do this at the restaurant too because we use fresh pasta that we've made. You make those fresh – uh, sheets of pasta or, or po- sheets of fresh pasta, egg pasta, and uh, boil them. Uh, they're fantastic. I mean, it doesn't. It, it's ziti's got nothing to do with it. Uh, ziti's heavier. Uh, you know that layered lasagna. Yes, I agree. It does take time, but to me, there's something very satisfying in making a dish that does require some attention and effort and time. And, and then you have this wonderful product in the end. Although I will, I will say one thing about lasagna, which is and I, obviously it all depends. It co- goes back to something Dan was saying at the beginning, which is know how big a crowd of people you're cooking for, You know how many mouths are really going to be uh, fed with this dish. There's something about lasagna there. there it, you run out of enthusiasm for having second or third day lasagna before you run out of lasagna almost invariably. There's sort of that last lonely set of, of squares of <laughs> Well, that's true because you're not making small small portions out of it. That's true. So, um, Laura Anderson, I'll give you the option of either A, defending lasagna, B, attacking lasagna, <laughs> or C, talking about some other dish that you basically think is either not worth making or or should be made a different way. Um, I'm going to defend lasagna on the basis of texture. Uh, you know, Dan made the comparison to baked ziti, and I think baked ziti is a great dish, but with baked ziti you end up with these tubes of pasta that are hollow in the middle, and so the in texture of the casserole has these basically air pockets in it. Whereas with lasagna, you have very densely layered ingredients, and the result is a really sort of very comfortingly heavy casserole. So they're different, and sometimes you're in the mood for one of them and sometimes the other. Um, I agree that if you're not in the mood for layering or if you just don't want the hassle, baked CD is a great option. But in general, I think lasagna is sometimes worth making. If I can just respond quickly, Colin, I will say that first of all, you have two. You you have two minutes, by the way, and then Laura gets two minutes. It's it's like standard. (laughs) Go ahead. I love this. It's great. This is my rebuttal. If if you take all the baked ziti, if you take the ziti pasta and mix it around with a sauce and mix it for a minute or two, the sauce will get inside the tubes, and it will be actually even better than lasagna. I would also say that while I still call it baked ziti. It's way better if you make it with rigatoni, not ziti. In fact, why should anyone ever use ziti when you can use rigatoni, which has the ridges on the outside? That means more surface area on the pasta and better sauce adhesion. I, by the way, I would second that emotion. I mean, I, I really do feel as though rigatoni, something with a ridge is preferable. Not only, not only for the reason that you say that it catches more things, but there's just something, I don't know, I don't, I, there's something eerily eel-like about the smoothness of the ziti. I, I want the ridges. It's, I it's want, unsettling. Yeah, exactly. It's a, there's a, 
some kind of reaction that I'm uh, that I'm having to this. As we go along, by the way, our number is 860-275-7266. Uh, 860-275-7266. Um, Dan, uh, and this is we'll, we'll get everybody involved in this. One of the things that I thought was interesting. Well, let me just preface this by saying that when we do sound checks here, and we've been on the air for five years, five days a week, when we do just the mic checks, we usually ask people what they had for breakfast. Now, if we had been rolling on this, we would have com- we would have this incredible database of what people have for breakfast. But one of the things that I'm struck by is that people occasionally say that they had something for breakfast that doesn't strike me as something that people should have for breakfast or doesn't fit into my platonic thinking about what breakfast categories are. But one of the things you do in this book, and Eat More Better, is assail all of those categories, right? You sort of are basically making the argument that we have a lot of arbitrary thinking that goes on about what kind of taste belongs in what kind of setting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with breakfast, people say, what's a breakfast food? What's a dinner food? You know, I love peanut butter and jelly for breakfast or any time of the day. I had sashimi for breakfast just yesterday. That's a great <laughs> breakfast. Uh, I think that eggs are a wonderful protein to have at dinner time. I, I just think in general in the book, I really encourage people to just stop and think. Think for a minute about why we you eat the way you do and what you do and how you do and when you do and just question. Question all your underlying assumptions. And if you do, I think you'll find that without putting forth a whole lot of effort and without having any special expertise – you can make your life a lot more delicious. I mean, I think you didn't you even recommend um, like putting something into cereal that's like a cheese it or something like oh, that? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I don't understand why there are no savory breakfast cereals. And I certainly don't understand why there are no cheesy breakfast cereals because I, I, at least I haven't seen any and they aren't or they aren't very popular. Um, cheese and milk is a natural combination. So I, I set out to create a savory cheese breakfast cereal, and I did it by taking those Pepperidge Farm goldfish, putting them in a bowl, and pouring milk on top. And it was a little shocking to the palate <laughs> at first. I bet. <laughs> but I think in the long term, delicious once you acquire the taste. It's, you know, it's, a, it's for a more refined palate. Um, let me pull the others here, Laura. Are there things that, that you would shift uh, from one category to another, uh, uh, something, uh, an unexpected bre- uh, breakfast food, or perhaps you're serving uh, pancakes at, at your elegant dinner parties? I, I definitely agree with Dan that eggs are a wonderful dinner ingredient. Um, I often will make a frittata for dinner. I think frittatas are a great dinner. Um, and I also think, you know, I was just talking to a colleague about doing savory oatmeal, Um and while I don't think I will be eating Cheez-Its in my cold cereal anytime <laughs> soon, I do think that making a nice pot of plain oatmeal with either stock or just water or milk and then putting some, you can do soy sauce on top or you can do Parmesan cheese on top and uh, it's, or fresh herbs. It's just a really nice palate that you can um, that you can mess around with and, and do lots of different things with. Too many people, I think, are too attached to the idea of sweet oatmeal and never open up their minds to the idea of savory oatmeal. Um, Linda, your turn. Well, actually, Dan brings up a, a good point. I, I'm not sure where this whole business of having sweet cereals for breakfast started, mm-hmm. where it came from. But in the end, I think the most important thing is that you eat something. I mean, breakfast is supposed to be, or the first meal of the day, forget breakfast, the first meal of the day is supposed to be pretty important. Then better to eat something, whether it's pizza or pancakes or uh, sweet cereal, than nothing at all. 
I, I frequently, but I don't eat eggs for breakfast because I so frequently do uh, eat them for dinner. Uh, but one thing I can tell you that having done all these sound checks, a lot of people, not a lot of people, some people, if they had something really good the night before, they can't wait to have the leftovers for lunch or dinner. They just have them for breakfast, whether or not it seems like it would make any sense or not. Um, Dan, you mentioned peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. This is a very uh, fraught topic here on the Colin McEnroe Show because Betsy Kaplan, our producer, uh, who you dealt with, I think, in setting up this interview, is a very steadfast consumer of uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. She doesn't like to wait until noon to eat her lunch. She often has her peanut butter and jelly sandwich at 1030, which is like some kind of hobbit second breakfast or something. <laughs> it's like some yeah, Tolkien uh, hour for eating something. But you do have a theory, right, about the layering of, I mean, you have a theory about everything, basically, but the construction of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Yes, I absolutely do. I think there's a few competing factors at play. Uh, peanut butter is very sticky. So you don't want – so when you put the peanut butter on top, I find that it tends to get stuck to the roof of your mouth. Um, and really when you put it on the bottom, it gets stuck you know, in other, other parts of your mouth. I also find that I don't like big globs of jelly, or really I prefer it with jam anyway, but I don't like big globs of preserves. So what I recommend is a very thin layer of preserves on top and bottom and then a thick layer of peanut butter in the middle. That encases the peanut butter in the jelly to lubricate it. doesn't get stuck inside your mouth. It gives you more, more of the flavor of the preserves because they're on the bottom also and closer to your tongue, and that flavor is accentuated. Um, without you having to add a whole lot of preserves, which would be a lot of sugar and a lot of that gloopy gloppiness going on. So I think that's the best of all worlds, even though it is a bit revolutionary. I don't know if that's how Betsy does it. <laughs> I don't know, but she was smiling kind of beatifically <laughs> the entire time. It was really like you were talking to a Buddhist about nirvana or something. She <laughs> seemed she seemed transported in a way that I rarely see her. Did you have something you wanted to add to that? No, no I I'm a pe- I'm a big peanut butter fan myself. Uh, Dance, uh, dance sandwich sounds great. Um, Laura, we have a, rem- uh, a limited amount of time left, but uh, so I was wondering if you wanted to give us one tip from your doing it wrong. I've really been enjoying these videos a lot. Some of them are things that I had sort of already figured out on my own that you, you can make a fr- fried egg more solid on top without flipping it. If you just drop a little, you know, pan cover over it and stuff like that. I actually, even in my dim-witted, blundering state, had figured that out. But um, there's some just great ideas, and you're doing it wrong. Do you want to uh, give a give us one for the road here? Sure, and thank you for the compliment. Mm-hmm. Um, since Thanksgiving is this week. Uh, I will give the tip that is included in this week's video, which is to use a potato ricer when you are making mashed potatoes. It's way faster than using a traditional handheld masher. Um, it creates just perfectly smooth mashed potatoes, and it's really fun to use. So it's pretty basic. Pretty much anyone will tell you this. This is not a very original trick, but I can nonetheless highly recommend using a potato ricer. That's great. And I would also recommend uh, listening to the last week's episode of The Food Schmooze that Linda was also on, where Chris Prosperi was really... Get going deep on on mashed potatoes. Yes, he did. I learned about a lot dry, about about uh, keeping them dry. You have to yeah. keep them dry. You want them right. to absorb water because right. they're going to be just like the Brussels sprouts right. that that you guy was talking glue. about. Uh, all right, this has been great. Uh, run out and buy uh, Eat More Better: uh, How to Make Everybody Delicious by Dan Pashman. Make sure you uh, read the work and buy the bread of Linda Juca, and of course check out uh, You're Doing It Wrong, L.V. Anderson's food blog and and vlog on Slate. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for putting together today's show. Tomorrow. Survival. Well, there's a snowstorm coming.
And what would you like to order today, miss? I'd like the onion bagel with onion hummus, uh, raw white, yellow, and red onions with a side of onion rings, please. Very good. I try to keep my eating simple.